Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On a chilly evening in January, an unmarked white minibus pulls up outside a large wooden gate. A group of young children run out, jump inside the vehicle, and it drives off. And then, every half hour from 4 to 5.30pm, the process is repeated. Each time, the children are slightly older. Sometimes, the shadowy figure of an adult keeps watch from just inside the gate. It all bears the signs of a clandestine operation. But this is a routine repeated every day in a neighbourhood in North London. And the children are pupils at a school that, in theory doesn't exist. Day after day after day, we sat and filmed that process. This is still a flourishing school. Today, we look at a Times investigation which has found unregistered and even unsafe schools secretly operating in the Hasidic community in North London. And we'll also hear from a headmaster within the community in Stamford Hill. I think schools who are standards of health and safety and the standards of their facilities are unsafe or unhygienic is is shameful. It's embarrassing and it's wrong. I'm I'm not here to defend that. Um, Just to say that the overwhelming majority of Hasidic schools are registered. Too often, when investigations and even Netflix series that discuss the Hasidic community, the impression that people get is that this is some sort of um, dystopian cult where people are trapped in some endless cycle of poverty and misery. And that is just completely false and fails to understand what the Hasidic community is all about. (music) 
You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the hidden schools of Stamford Hill. My name is Andrew Norfolk. I'm the chief investigative reporter on The Times. I've been a journalist for 30 three years, and I've been staff reporter on The Times for 23 years. Andrew, with this particular story, where does it begin for you? What got you interested in what was happening in Stamford Hill? I've been interested for many years in the different religions and faiths in the UK. I started looking initially at Ofsted reports, dozens and dozens and dozens of reports of inspections by Ofsted of faith schools in this country across all religions. And then the more I read, the more I became very interested in what I was reading about a number of ultra-Orthodox Jewish schools. And because a significant number of those ultra-Orthodox schools were clustered in a few streets, relatively, in one area of North London, called Stamford Hill, that's when we decided it would be worth taking a closer look. To set the scene, if I can give you some numbers to start with, of the 271,000 Jewish people in the UK, it's estimated that 76,000 are members of the ultra-Orthodox community. And of those 76,000, around about 35,000 live in Stamford Hill. It's by some way the largest ultra-Orthodox community in Europe. We're just two miles south of Tottenham Hotspur's brand-new football stadium. But here are closely-knit streets, kosher businesses, blocks of apartments. The ultra-Orthodox who live in Stamford Hill belong to a particular subsection within the ultra-Orthodox world. It's a subsection that seeks to protect itself and its beliefs and its values by erecting a host of invisible barriers to the outside world. No access to social media, often no television allowed in the home. The way they dress, for the men you see in long black coats, large black hats, the language they speak, which isn't English, it's, it's Yiddish, they're all among a host of social norms designed to create a distancing protective buffer between the community and the outside world. So, Andrew, when you talk about the community in Stamford Hill, just explain a bit about what is the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community and and what is the Hasidic community and are they one and the same? Ultra-Orthodox Judaism is, in the span of Jewish history, a relatively recent phenomenon. It was born in largely in Eastern Europe in the 18th, 19th century. It was a revivalist tradition. But 90% of the ultra-Orthodox in Stamford Hill belong to one of a, a number of Hasidic sects. And there are a number of sects, each with their own schools. So there'll be a Satmar primary school next to a, a few street doors away as a Boboff one, and then a Vishnitz one, and they share, to a greater or lesser extent, similar values. The primary focus really was all about the schools and the education. 
One of the first things I had to learn was that there's a huge contrast between the education that's provided to Hasidic girls, who typically are allowed to study a wide range of secular subjects. Boys, by contrast, it's a very different story. There are an estimated 4,000 Hasidic boys aged between 3 and 13 who are currently being educated in the Hasidic schools, and a further 1,500 who at the age of 13, moved to full-time religious schools, which are known as yeshivas, where there is zero secular education. Now, most of the primary schools are actually registered with Ofsted, though there are a few very notable exceptions of unregistered primary schools. None of the religious schools that they go to at 13, these yeshivas, none of them are registered. Let's take the primary schools. Three to 13-year-olds are spending the full work week, six days a week, in a school that provides at maximum 90 minutes to two hours of secular education a day, often taught by very poorly trained teachers, many of whom can barely speak English themselves. That's in the Ofsted registered schools, where Ofsted can at least go in, look at teaching plans, look at the buildings, look at safeguarding arrangements. They then imagine that child at 13 then goes to the religious school where, again, all teaching is in Yiddish. Every minute of the working day is devoted to Jewish studies and texts. This is a situation that Ofsted has known about for years, that the local education authority, in this case Hackney, has known about for years. And both Hackney and Ofsted have been trying to change a loophole in the law, to close a loophole, which allows the unregistered primary schools and all the religious schools, the yeshivas, to come under their umbrella so that Ofsted would be able to go in, gain evidence, investigate what is happening inside those buildings, go in, check, are these buildings safe? Because many of them are not. And here's the crazy loophole. The Department of Education has a definition, legal definition, of what constitutes a school. And its definition of a school involves an institution that provides a sufficient level of secular education. Because these full-time schools provide far too narrow a curriculum to meet the DfE's definition of what is a school, they're not schools. According to the Department for Education, they're, oh. they're what's called unregistered educational settings. And none of the controls, none of the safety controls, none of the external statutory scrutiny that would be applied to any normal school applies to them. So, so basically, at the moment, Ofsted and the local authority, they can't go in and look at these schools because they don't offer secular education. I mean, in that case, the law basically places a, a disincentive there for that to change. There's no reason why, why these schools would want to give their pupils a secular education. Uh, absolutely. The irony is that last year there was a schools bill on the table. One part of that bill would have changed the definition of what constitutes a school in a way that would have closed the loophole. But late last year, the government decided to abandon the bill. It was shelved. 
We've heard rumours, and uh, I think the fairly widespread <laughs> rumours, that the schools bill um, is no longer uh, likely to progress. Is that the case? And, and if so, can you, can you explain why? Uh, yeah, well, I can confirm that the, the schools bill um, will not progress in the third session. Um, I mean, obviously, there's, there's been um, a, lot, a lot of things that we've had to, to focus on, and the need to provide economic stability and tackle the cost of living uh, means that the, t the parliamentary time has definitely been reprioritised on that. And we all know that we had to do that because of the, um, you know, the pandemic aftershocks, but also the war in Ukraine, and we needed to support uh, families. Um, however, we do remain um, committed to uh, the objectives, the very many important objectives uh, that underpinned the bill, and we will be prioritising... I spoke to Amanda Spielman. She is the, the head of Ofsted. She is the government's chief inspector of schools. She said she was extremely disappointed by the decision to, to shelve the bill. When I asked her about her views on the education that boys receive in Hasidic schools, she described that education as completely unacceptable and in some cases unsafe. She said some of these schools are among the worst places we've ever seen children having to learn. We've seen wow. every kind of safety hazard, fire hazard, broken glass, broken furniture, rat poison out on the floors. Now, you hear that from the, the head of Ofsted, and you think, how can this be allowed to continue? I should be clear, we're talking about the unregistered schools here, n not the registered ones, but the unregistered primaries and the, the yeshivas. I mean, some of them are actually in, in quite, appear to be quite in quite good condition, others not. This certainly hasn't solely been an issue for the current government, successive governments of both main parties have chosen to look the other way. The, the idea was, if they're not bothering us and they're happy with it, why should we get involved? It's easier, much easier to keep the peace. And there's always the terror of treading on cultural eggshells, of, of wading in in size 10 hobnail boots in, into a world you don't understand. And you've actually spoken to some of the people who've left the community, but who were taught in those schools. And what did they tell you about their experience of, of going through them? Can we talk about one particular notorious unregistered primary school where two of the young men I spoke to separately were pupils from the age of three to 13. Hmm. Its name is Tashbar. It's been running for nearly half a century and in theory, it does not exist. I've spent days and days at different periods sitting outside that school. We needed to sit there to get the evidence to prove that the school exists, because in theory, it doesn't exist. It was ordered to close by the Department for Education in 2016, that's seven years ago. And you watch outside in the morning or in, at the end of the school day, and it's an extraordinary experience. It's suddenly, a, a, an unmarked white minibus will pull up outside what's effectively a hidden entrance. Sometimes somebody, an adult, is keeping watch at the gate until the minibus pulls up. Then he gives a signal, and these little kids fly out and jump into the side of the minibus, which speeds away. The two former pupils I spoke to both described the use of corporal punishment as a routine daily event, the, the hitting really? and beating of children. 
And one of those young men, he's in his early 20s, he knows it's still continuing because his youngest brother is still a pupil there. He talked about the ethos they were taught there, which is that when we were walking home from school from Tashbar, we were encouraged to look down at the ground just in front of our feet so as, as not to absorb anything from the defiled streets. We were taught that non-Jews, secular Jews, even modern Orthodox Jews were inferior and evil. He described teachers routinely either hitting boys with their hands, slapping them, or using big wooden sticks that they used on boys who talked in class or were disrespectful. One teacher would take his belt from his trousers and use it on the child's back, though that didn't happen very often. I mean, Andrew, that's really alarming because obviously there you've got the use of corporal punishment. You're coming up against British laws. You know, that that isn't legal. When you spoke to the school, or however they define themselves, what was their response to all of this? So there's no markings to indicate as a school, but but like there were three men, Hasidic men, standing just outside the first open doorway into the first building. And I asked to speak to their master. One of the men very politely asked me to, to leave the premises and said he would come out and talk to me. And in fairness, he did. And we had a very brief but polite conversation. And he asked what I was doing there. And I, I said, you know, I was a journalist from the Times and we were asking to speak to the, the headmaster. And he he said, the headmaster of what? And I said, of the school, Tashba. And he cocked his head gently to one side and smiled rather benevolently and said, school? I don't think you'll find there's a school here. We've now delivered an, in writing a letter to give them an opportunity to respond to what we've been told about that place and what Ofsted has said about that place, and we'll see whether they decide they want to provide any comment at all. The Stamford Hill Tash Bar did respond to that letter the following day, and this is what they said. Tash Bar is not a school within the meaning of education legislation as it doesn't provide anything other than religious education. Since 2016, Ofsted have inspected the setting on multiple occasions and would have prosecuted Tashbar if there'd been evidence that it was operating an unregistered school. Tashbar denies that the building is unsafe or unsuitable and that corporal punishment takes place. Tashbar also denies that its pupils are taught that others are inferior or evil. To do so would directly conflict with Jewish learning. I should stress that a school like Tashbar is at the very most extreme end of the Hasidic world. There are other registered primaries that are doing work with some headmasters who are trying within the bounds of keeping the values and the ethos of the Hasidic world to gradually improve the quality of the secular education that's being provided. Coming up, we'll speak to one of those headmasters who's trying to marry secular education with an isolationist world. But first. I'm Kat Lay, health editor at The Times. Our health coverage spans everything from how the way we live can raise or lower our risk of diseases to advances in medical treatment 
to the problems facing the NHS and their potential solutions. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Uh, my name is Ellie Spitzer. I am the head teacher of a Orthodox Jewish school in North London. I'm also a member of the Hasidic community in Stamford Hill, which is where I grew up and where I currently live with my family. Tell us a bit about growing up in Stamford Hill. So being part of the Hasidic community means growing up in a very unique environment. It's a very sheltered upbringing in a protective bubble if you like and ultimately understanding that chances are when you grow up that you will be married in the community and raise your own family in the same community it was a very happy and exciting childhood but by no means a conventional one It's really interesting that you sort of describe it as sheltered. At what point in your life did you realise that maybe, you know, the version of the world you'd seen was a bit sheltered? Well, I think it's it's not something that our parents or educators hide from us. I think it is very deliberate that we understand that we are, if you like, um, a people apart. We live in a global metropolis, but our duty, if you like, is to remain loyal to the customs, traditions of the Hasidic community, and too much exposure to the outside world inevitably means outside influences, which inevitably means undermining your own traditions and your own customs and your own way of life. And by the way, Mm. I should say, this isn't about uh, Jews and non-Jews. This is about 
um, Hasidic Jews than everyone else. Anything that doesn't subscribe to the particular traditions and way of life of the Hasidic community could potentially be perceived as a threat. And therefore, there was an understanding that there is a need for sort of um, in-group solidarity, which inevitably comes with a degree of arm's length to everyone else, I guess. What did that look like for you? I mean, were you were you taught English, for example? I was taught English um, nominally, started at a pretty late stage and ended at a pretty early stage. It wasn't very comprehensive. And at the end of my English studies, I wasn't really able to speak much English. My, my first language is Yiddish. I grew up speaking Yiddish. Not all families are Yiddish-speaking families. There are plenty of English-speaking families, but ours was a Yiddish-speaking family. I mean, your English now is obviously much better than that. Um, how did you improve? Well, I, I became uh, aware at a pretty early stage, I would say, probably at the age of 15 or 16, that I, I have a, a deficit when it comes to speaking English. It's something that developed into a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I felt, well, it bothered me, and I decided to do something about it. So I, I, I started reading, did a lot of listening to talk show radios, and then some point decided to start contributing to late night talk shows on the radio by phoning in as an opportunity to practice my English and yeah, until eventually, you know, I, I mastered it, I guess. Was it okay to listen to the radio and to contribute or was that sort of thing done in secret? It's not, it's interesting. It wasn't perfectly okay because as I said before, I was still um, a young teenager and there are higher expectations of being sheltered when you grow up than when you are an adult. Radio is the sort of thing where it would be acceptable for an adult to listen to the radio in the car, to listen to the news, and people do it quite regularly and it's quite common. But for a child and a young adult, a teenager growing up, that would be frowned upon. It's probably worth pointing out that it's usually the boys and the men in the Hasidic community who end up not as fluent in English. The girls, mm. the majority of them, do grow up speaking English as a first language and spend much more time in school and at home speaking English. So there is an interesting sort of um, dynamic in the Hasidic community where women predominantly speak English as a first language and men predominantly speak Yiddish as a first language. Girls would start their secular education from the early mm. years and go all the way up to year 11, where they'll take GCSEs, the full range of GCSEs, whereas boys would start their secular education much later, and they would finish by the end of year six or year seven. So there's a significant difference. Now, as to why that is, um, it isn't entirely obvious what the reason is. I I've been thinking about this a lot. And one of the reasons which could explain it is the fact that Boys' schools in the Hasidic community can trace an ancestry going back hundreds of years to the traditional setting. This goes back to the old Jewish towns and cities in, in Eastern Europe. And it is ultimately at heart the original idea of sending your boy to a religious tutor who would fully socialize him into the values, traditions, and texts of the Jewish canon. Whereas girls' education didn't exist. Oh. Um, up until, I would say, well, it's not, I would say, I mean, we know that this was in the interwar period in Poland, 
when there was this sort of groundbreaking, almost revolutionary movement for girls' education. And I think because they had to compete with schools who are offering a full, comprehensive secular education, I think from its inception, girls' schools were set up to be ra radically different. And to some extent, I think up to this day, the, the big difference between boys' and girls' education can be explained by that. You're now a headmaster yourself. Yeah. Just tell us a bit about your school. Um, so the school where I currently work is uh, very different to mainstream Hasidic schools. It is a relatively new school, which is just as committed to the Hasidic ethos that other boys' schools in Stanford Hill are committed to, but at the same time is also committed to providing a good standard, an excellent standard of secular education. And we follow the national curriculum when it comes to core subjects. We start secular studies from day one, from the very early years, and we go up. At the moment, our oldest class is year eight, so we're a primary and secondary, and we're in the process of opening. We opened year eight this year and hopefully continue to go up to year 11. I believe that there is um, a need for an option to exist, a track, if you like, for parents who feel that they want to provide their children with a good standard of secular education alongside their full immersion socialization into a Hasidic way of life. And they shouldn't have to choose between the two. Are there bits of the national curriculum that you don't feel are appropriate to teach to, to children at secondary level? Well, the first thing, it's not about what I feel. The decisions that I make as a head teacher to decide what is or isn't on the curriculum is exclusively driven by the wishes of parents. And frankly, parents do not want the school to challenge, undermine any of the fundamental beliefs uh, or even the culture of the Hasidic community. It is perfectly possible to teach the national curriculum, but you have to be careful in selecting the right programs, the texts, to make sure that they don't undermine the Hasidic ethos. Uh, to give you an example, um, one of the strong principles of the Hasidic community is the zero sexualization of children. Children have zero exposure or understanding of sexually explicit material at a young age. And that, by the way, includes censoring our own biblical and Talmudic texts that make sexual references. And therefore, when it comes to selecting texts for our Key Stage 3 English curriculum, I had to understand which texts will avoid those themes that parents would not want us to discuss with the children, but at the same time to ensure that they get a, a, a very high standard and that they get the opportunity to read great works, classic books. So... For example, would it mean that Romeo and Juliet was just off, off the curriculum? Yeah, it does mean that. It means Romeo and Juliet is out of the question. But it does mean that Macbeth is acceptable, which is why that is on the curriculum. Yeah. And how about, um, how about teaching biology and, and reproduction in classes? Is that allowed? Reproduction is not something, certainly not at this stage, that we would include on the curriculum. So... We're not up to the stage of teaching the actual GCSE courses, and we would obviously have to look at those when it comes to it. But at the moment, the program that we use for science is, is has got a very heavy focus on physics, on chemistry, and biology, but it is a program which 
carefully avoids discussing reproduction for the very reason that the view of parents is that at this age, it is not something that they want their children to be taught. And in fact, even when they do want their children to learn about reproduction, they prefer to do it at home. And as a school that exists to serve the needs and the wishes of parents, it is not within our gift to ignore those wishes. You wrote a piece in The Times where you wrote that any attempt to improve these schools that don't meet mainstream educational standards must start by asking the question why parents nevertheless choose to send their children there. In other words, that they must be doing something right. What are they getting right? Um, Well, first let me explain what I mean by, by asking that question. Because too often, when discussions, portrayals, investigations, and even Netflix series that discuss the Hasidic community, the impression that people get is that this is some sort of um, dystopian cult where people are trapped in some endless cycle of poverty and misery with a, a, a handful of brave people who have managed to escape by the skin of their teeth, who are being celebrated and whose voices dominate those sort of discussions about the Hasidic community. That is just completely false and fails to understand what the Hasidic community is all about. Members of the Hasidic community, I'm talking about rank and file members, parents who go about their daily lives, are not trapped in in some sort of North Korean gulag, they are perfectly happy, content with their way of life, and they want to perpetuate that, and they want to raise their children in the same way of life. The best mechanism that one has to try and ensure that your children grow up as part of the same tradition and loyal to the same way of life is to send them to a school that reinforces and enables that particular mission. That is, at least in most cases, the highest priority for parents. And in that sense, schools are extremely successful. We were talking there about the schools like the one that you're running, which are registered, you know, which do try to follow part of the national curriculum. What about the schools that aren't registered and and that, you know, aren't meeting educational standards, but also sort of just in terms of the conditions that they're being run in could be quite harmful or dangerous for children? I don't. I don't disagree. I think schools who are standards of health and safety and the standards of their facilities are unsafe or unhygienic is is shameful. It's embarrassing and it's wrong. I'm, I'm not here to defend that. Um, just to say that the overwhelming majority of Hasidic schools are registered. There are a handful, uh, maybe one or two primary schools that are not registered, and then there's the issue of yeshivas, which is well documented. The way the Hasidic community schooling system is set up is that the, most of the boys' schools will go from nursery up to year eight. And year eight would be seen as the end of their sort of primary education, after which they would go to what is called a yeshiva. And those yeshivas, are the majority of them are unregistered. You see, at the moment, if a yeshiva, a religious school, would apply for registration, they would be refused the right to register on the grounds that the curriculum that they offer is too narrow. So you've ended up in this sort of strange situation where 
you demand that all settings should be registered so that the authorities can ensure basic standards of health and safety and ensure the welfare of children, which I agree with. But at the same time, those yeshivas have got no chance of actually being given registration because they don't meet um, the academic standards that are demanded. I think the conversation should be what are the basic standards of literacy and numeracy and perhaps citizenship that every citizen, every child growing up in this country should attain. And I think there is a legitimate interest that the state has in demanding a certain standard for the purpose of, of having a cohesive society, I guess, for keeping the king's peace. But all of that is to say that you have to start from a zero-based approach where you say, what can I legitimately demand that everyone delivers? And then we say that there's a certain level of proficiency in English that every child growing up in this country should attain. And then the community, the school should be able to say, we accept that and we will deliver that. But how and when and how we choose to go about it is up to us. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Chief Investigative Reporter at The Times, Andrew Norfolk, and Ellie Spitzer. You can read and watch Andrew's full investigation at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.